Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James Montgomery Boyce said that if we were to write the Beatitudes ourselves without knowing Jesus, they're more likely to sound like this. Blessed are the rich, for they have it all and have it all now. Blessed are the happy, for they are content with themselves And don't need others. Blessed are the arrogant, for people defer to them. Blessed are those who fight for the good things in life, for they will get them. Blessed are the sophisticated, for they will have a good time. How would you write, how would you rewrite what a blessed life looks like. Our passage this morning is the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which we find in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5 to 7. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount because, as we see in verse 1, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he sits down, which was a common posture for teaching. You might remember last week, we saw how Jesus began proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he began to heal the sick and to deliver people of their, of their demonic oppression. And so because of this, he healed all of them. The crowds got bigger, and they started hanging around him, following him around. You notice how Matthew intentionally tells us that here in verse 1, his disciples came to him. The picture we have is one of crowds that are around the edges, and they're listening, they're they're hearing what he's saying, but his teaching is for his disciples, meaning that everything we're about to hear him say in this Sermon on the Mount, everything from chapters 5 to 7 is directed to those who follow him. Which is why the, te- the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount cannot be applied to non-Christians. And some might think it's, it's wise or might have some good principles to live by, but you are chopping it off at the knees if you're seeking to get something from this without being a disciple of Jesus. And perhaps you're here this morning and that's you. You're part of the crowd who is listening in. You're interested in Jesus. You like some of the things that he says. Let me encourage you this morning to listen for the things that make Jesus different from any other sage, from any other wise person, from any other religious leader. What is it that makes his message unique? Well, the sermon begins with Jesus opening his mouth, as he says in verse 2. That's a phrase that is used in the Old Testament when something important or something significant or profound is about to be said. <clears throat> and Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount with what we often, called, uh, what often call the Beatitudes. Now, they're called that because it comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. Now, kids, can you tell me, is being blessed or being blessed a good or a bad thing? Good thing. That's right. It is a good thing to be blessed. Now, those who have been Christians for a long time, this is a passage which I think will be generally well known to us. 
But I wonder, how well is it understood? To be honest with you, I was very keen to look into this passage this week because for most of my life, I've heard all sorts of things about the Beatitudes and still had some lingering questions about what Jesus is trying to say here. I hope I'm able to clear some of that up for us this morning. And speaking of clarity, before we get into the Beatitudes themselves, let's clear some things up. Now, as is obvious from the repeated refrain throughout this passage, the Beatitudes are all about what it means to be blessed. Now, I resisted the temptation to use hashtag blessed in the title of this sermon this morning. But I bring it up now because never in my life have I seen so many people who are not Christians use this word to describe something good in their lives. Surely you're familiar with it. And so given the common use of the term without any biblical reference point, we need to be sure that when we use the term, when we hear Jesus saying it here in Matthew 5, we know what God means by it. And so here are three key things that I think we should make sure we're clear on when we hear the word blessed or blessed. Firstly, being blessed is more than just being happy. You may have heard a translation of this passage which replaces the term blessed with the term happy. Happy are those. Now, that's not necessarily wrong because the one who is blessed will generally be in a happy state. But as ironically named uh, New Testament scholar Eugene Boring said, the opposite of blessed is not unhappy, but cursed. Jesus is talking about more than just the emotional feeling of cheerfulness. Which brings us to the second point. Being blessed is about more than just a feeling. It is about the state that a person is in. A person can be happy even though others might look at their state and think, well, they're not blessed. In Scripture, a state of blessedness is most often achieved by God's decree or God's direct blessing of a people or a nation. He blesses Adam and Eve. He blesses Abraham. And throughout Deuteronomy, he talks about how he blesses his people if they obey. And the book of Deuteronomy finishes with Moses blessing the nation. Which brings us to the third and final point about blessedness. Being blessed, being blessed is an objective state of being that God has given, which is, or at least should be, considered to be an ideal state. Being blessed is not about whether you feel blessed or not. It's about whether you actually are or not. Now, I say all of that because how we view what being blessed is will have a tremendous impact on how we understand this passage. If we only think of being blessed as being hashtag blessed, as in everything looks great, everything is going right in my life, then we will completely misunderstand and find confusing what Jesus has to say. And I also say it because I get the feeling for most of us, our list of the blessed would look more like the one I shared at the start. In almost every single one of these Beatitudes, the ones whom Jesus calls the blessed are definitely not the ones that we would call the blessed. Yet Jesus inverts those expectations. Now, Jesus' original hearers, these are people who are used to disappointments. Israel has had their nation destroyed, attempts to maintain its status as a nation have been thwarted, and now they are living under Roman law, Roman rule. Their spirits are likely broken. They're more accustomed to mourning than they are to rejoicing. And they uh, seek to try and, and, and gain God's favor, God's blessing again, because they recognize that Israel lost all of that because of their disobedience. And so as the Pharisees did, they seek to obey the law by creating laws on top of the law. So you can imagine as the crowds come in, as they seek, as they lean in to hear what Jesus has to say, 
They must be thinking, what is this miracle worker going to say about our current state? Jesus opens by telling them that their broken spirits and that their mourning is not for nothing. That in fact, such mourning in the kingdom of heaven means they are blessed. This morning, we'll work through uh, all of the Beatitudes, some longer than others, and all of my headings are the same as the Beatitudes themselves. As we'll see, Jesus gives eight Beatitudes in verses 3 to 10, and then he expands on the last one in verses 11 and 12. So there are eight Beatitudes, there'll be eight headings. I'm doing this because I hope to highlight these characteristics of the blessed in hope that we will remember them. And the first sets us up for the whole list. Let's begin with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Have you ever looked at somebody living on the street and thought to yourself, man, that person is living the good life. No? <laughs> I scrolled through at least 300 photos on Instagram this week with the blessed hashtag, and not a single one was of a person showing off their poverty. Surprise, surprise. You see, we don't associate being poor with being blessed. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, if you turn over to Luke's version of the Beatitudes, you'll see that he does just say, blessed are the poor. So there's that. But just going off what Jesus says here in Matthew, to be poor in spirit still conjures up the same sense of having no resources, of being spiritually bankrupt and unable to provide for yourself. It's talking about having a state of mind and having an attitude towards life that recognizes you have nothing to offer. In the same way that a person who is physically and materially poor, we would look at and say, oh, you poor thing, that is not blessed. We would consider those who are poor in spirit the same way. Taking an example from somebody who recently made the headlines, here's a screenshot of just one of the many posts of former kickboxer come motivational speaker Andrew Tate. This was just a few days ago. Your mind is an instrument. Learn to be its master, not its slave. 118,000 people liked this tweet, and millions more saw it and probably liked it without actually liking it, if you know what I mean. I wonder if Jesus tweeted out the Beatitudes today, what the responses would be. It certainly wouldn't gain this kind of traction. This first beatitude is important to the structure of the whole thing and important to the, the under, understanding what it is that Jesus is saying in all of the others. The characteristics of the blessed that we see throughout this passage flow from one who is poor in spirit, one who recognizes that we come to God with nothing. Last week, we saw how Jesus began to preach a message that would remain central to his life and ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. See, being poor in spirit and repenting from sin both acknowledge something about ourselves. We are desperately in need of help. We cannot will our way to God. And that is the fundamental attitude with which we come to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is not one to be ashamed of. Because to do so is to be blessed. 
Now, before we move on, we must recognize that the left-hand side of this list of blessings aren't just things that we need to tolerate that we can have the, so that we can have the right-hand side. It's not like we look at this list of all, of all the Beatitudes and think, okay, well, I've just got to make sure I can do all of those. I've just got to you know, grit my teeth and grind my way through it and be this sad kind of mourning, mopey person in order to get all of these other good blessings. No, Jesus says that you are blessed in being the left-hand side, blessed in being people with these qualities. He could have left out the right-hand side completely. But thankfully, he gives us the reason why it's true by showing us the great promises of God that come with receiving the kingdom. You see, all of these, these, these rewards, all of these things in the right-hand side come as a result of being one who receives the kingdom of heaven. And do you remember how I said last week that the kingdom of heaven is now and not yet? It has arrived and is still yet to fully come. Well, here is another indicator of that. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. They have it now. And yet all the other promises in this list are future. We have the blessings of the kingdom, and yet we will fully receive them when he comes. Except the eighth and the last one, which repeats this first one. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These two promises, they bookend the Beatitudes. They, they are at the beginning and the end, demonstrating that all the other stuff in between is part of receiving the kingdom. The point is that the disciples of Jesus are blessed now because they will receive his rewards in the age to come. And these aren't conditional. It's not like if you're like this, then you'll receive this. If you are able to be poor in spirit enough, then you, then you will receive it. No, no. Jesus is showing us what characterizes his disciples. They are the ones who are like this on the left-hand side. And they will receive these promises from God in the kingdom of heaven. So ask yourself, which would you rather would you rather today's message that says you need to be master of your mind if you want to be blessed? That you need to go out and get your success if you want it? Or the poverty of spirit that Jesus offers to all those who receive the kingdom of heaven? This is something I'm sure we struggle with in many areas of life. But perhaps the most tragic is when we're around the very people we, who ought to encourage us in and through it. Church, when we gather together on the Lord's day, do we come with a poverty of spirit that says, Lord, I am spiritually bankrupt, so I come to your throne of grace in desperate need of grace? Are we willing and ready to actually come just as we are, demonstrating, showing how much we desperately need Jesus? Or are we more likely to do what Adam and Eve did and cover up our shame and nakedness with fig leaves? Brought to you by Calvin Klein. When one of our fellow members of the body comes on a Sunday feeling and speaking honestly about the rawness of their state, about the difficulty that they are walking through right now, how do you respond? The attitude of the blessed is one of desperate need for the Lord. And when we assemble as the Lord's people, this isn't just a time of lighthearted conversation and avoiding deep and difficult things. It's a time of also bearing one another's burdens and applying the balm of the gospel to each other's wounds. If we cannot be poor in spirit with one another, then how could we possibly expect to be that anywhere else? May that be evident in our lives that we and others might see the blessing of coming to the Lord in poverty of spirit. Now, this ties in pretty closely with the next beatitude. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. 
I don't think our culture knows how to mourn very well, generally speaking. I think it's getting better, but it's still generally true, I think, that we would prefer to hide or bury our mourning than display it. In the Old Testament, mourning was seen for all sorts of reasons, and particularly when a person experienced great loss, like Job, or when the nation of Israel received God's judgment. Now, all mourning is a recognition of and response to the fact that things are not the way they should be. And so we mourn over the effects of the fall. We mourn over death. We mourn over injustice. We mourn over strife. And ultimately, the thing which is the cause for the vast majority of that, we mourn over our own sin. Psalm 119, 136 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is such an appropriate attitude because, as Jesus would make clear later on in his ministry, he is the one who fulfills Isaiah 61. He is the one that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon, whom the Lord has anointed to bring good news to the poor. And that chapter goes on to say in verse 2, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That is what Jesus came to do. Those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted. They're blessed because though they grieve this fallen world and their own sin, they know that as surely as day follows night, comfort follows morning. This is a bedrock reality of the Christian life. Can you imagine what it must be like to mourn over something about which you believe you will never receive comfort? Consider those who don't believe in God or in any age to come. Imagine the grief of losing a child or a spouse on a honeymoon or an injustice committed against you and the offender walking free or perhaps mourning over a life that just has not gone to plan. Where would you go to find comfort? Such circumstances, as I'm sure you can imagine, often result in a life of mourning over something that cannot be made right. Some seem to never recover. Perhaps even as a Christian, this isn't something that you have to imagine. Maybe there are circumstances in your own life that you mourn over and you wonder where the comfort will come from and when. Brothers and sisters, don't seek comfort the way the world seeks comfort. Don't seek comfort in, in seeking to have your circumstances or your problems fixed. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will have everything that they are mourning about fixed. No. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How? Through the one who has brought the good news of the kingdom. God comforts us by wrapping his own arms around us as we weep so that we can feel the warmth of his love and know the security of his sovereignty. To know that he is good. The comfort that he will one day wipe away every tear is a comfort to us now. It's hard to grasp that in the midst of our mourning, but it is a promise of Jesus that means we are blessed. We look forward to the day. We anticipate the day when those tears will be wiped away. And that brings us comfort in the here and now. We do not mourn as those without hope. Hold on to that, brothers and sisters. 
because the one who is gentle and lowly will comfort us. Which brings us to our third beatitude. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Kids, does anyone know what meek means? Anyone? This is a tricky one. Have you heard the word before? Yeah? Got any thoughts on what it might mean? No? Yeah? Well, you know what? It sounds like another word that many people often get it confused with in terms of its meaning. Can you think of a word that rhymes with meek? Mia? Oh, we'll keep working on that rhyming skill, Zai. It's good. It's got, it starts with M. Beak? On a duck? Weak. Thank you, Beck. Weak. Now, it's easy to get them confused because not only does meek sound like weak, but its meaning might make you think of weakness, certainly in our culture. But being meek is not about being weak. It is about being gentle and humble. The meek person doesn't boast in themselves and is not harsh with others. In fact, the Greek word used here is sometimes translated in our Bibles in English as gentle, the same word. And guess which person who is anything but weak is described this way? Who is described as gentle and lowly? Jesus, that's right. Matthew eleven twenty nine. The meek are blessed because they follow in the footsteps of their Lord and Savior. The writers of the New Testament letters, they agree. Galatians five twenty three tells us that meekness is a fruit of the Spirit and other passages exhort us to put on meekness like Colossians three twelve. Blessed are the meek. But what does our culture prize? What do we value and hold up as blessed? Only the strong survive. I did it my way. Or in the words of Buddha, by oneself is evil left undone. By oneself is one made pure. Purity and impurity depend on oneself. No one can purify another. But Jesus doesn't tell us to look within ourselves to be made pure. He says, come to him in meekness. Come to the meek one who is gentle and lowly in heart. For the meek will inherit the earth. The old covenant promise of inheriting, to the, inheriting the land as captured by David in Psalm 37.11 looks forward to a promise far more vast in scope in Christ. The meek will not just inherit the land, they will inherit the whole earth. Because when Christ comes again and the kingdom of heaven comes in all of its glory, he will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be, in the words of Graham Goldsworthy, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to try and inherit the earth today. You don't have to try and go and get it. You can trust that those who humbly come before God and follow after our Savior will Inherit it all. Those who want to be like Jesus, how could we seek anything else but meekness? Because it is our desire to be like Him. It brings us to the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness means living righteously. It means doing what is right. A couple of weeks ago, we saw how Jesus was tested in the wilderness by fasting for 40 days. What's the longest that you've gone without food? Anyone? Anyone done more than three days? 
If you haven't done it, I encourage you to try it for at least a day. Because as I mentioned last week or a couple of weeks ago, fasting from food is like an object lesson of this beatitude. The act of fasting trains and focuses your mind on what it means to hunger and thirst for other things. It helps you to feel that. Psalm 42, verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Even if you've never seen a deer in your life, surely you've seen a dog after it has run around in the Darwin heat. It has its tongue hanging low as it looks for the nearest source of water in order to slake its thirst. That is the image Jesus wants us to capture. One of being completely unsatisfied and totally famished and desperately needing nourishment. That's the kind of longing for righteousness, the kind of panting after, the kind of ravenous pursuit until that hunger is satisfied and that thirst is slaked that Jesus characterizes the blessed. How often does that characterize us? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness like that? To be honest, more often, it seems to me like my hungering after righteousness looks more like trying to find a a box of shapes in the cupboard. Are we not a Christian culture that is far quicker to minimize our sin and to invoke so-called grace as a baptized excuse for our slouching in righteousness? Consider two people standing before a loaf of freshly baked bread. One hasn't eaten for a week, and the other has just had a big bowl of spaghetti bolognese. Which one is going to grab that loaf and devour it in 10 seconds flat? That's exactly right, Connor. The one who hasn't eaten is going to take that. Now ask yourself the question, if that loaf was righteousness, the pursuit of holiness, which one are you? Brothers and sisters, this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new struggle for the Christian. Listen to J.C. Ryle's words from his book, Holiness. I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety, lively righteousness in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. He could have written that last week. And yet that book was published in 1877. It's one definitely worth reading, and you'll hear a bit more of it next week. Brothers and sisters, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why are the hungry for righteousness ones blessed? For they shall be satisfied. Well, how is it that a person who longs to be holy as God is holy be satisfied? There is only one way. God will, on that final day, complete his work of salvation in his people by glorifying them and finally doing away with sin. That is how that hunger will finally be satisfied. Sin will be stamped out. Righteousness will be the reality. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself disheartened by a failure to live in perfect righteousness, remember that Jesus saving your soul covers past, present, and future. God has declared you righteous in Jesus so that you can be confident in the fact that you can stand before him on, based on his work for you. 
He is making you righteous today by His Spirit as you hunger and as you thirst after it. And He will one day transform you to be righteous when Jesus comes again. He will satisfy that hunger. Look back and see what your, that your sin is dealt with on that cross. Look forward to see that it will be dealt with in the age to come. And that will enable you to press on in pursuing and hungering and thirsting after righteousness as you look at your life today. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Sometimes people show mercy for selfish reasons. Did you ever play the game Mercy as a kid? Do you know that game? Kids, any of you guys play it? Oh, Bell's played it. Interesting. If you haven't played it, it's where you stand opposite somebody else and lock hands with them. The person who can bend the other person's hands in such a way that it starts to hurt enough that they want you to stop cries out, Mercy! I don't encourage you to play that, children. But in that game, showing mercy, that's just a way of saying that, well, you're the strong one. That's not really mercy. That's not the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about here. John Stott puts it like this. It is the meek who are also the merciful. For to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. To be merciful is to have compassion on others, for they are sinners too. You see, the follower of Christ shows mercy because they have received mercy. They recognize other people's need for mercy because we see it in ourselves. There is a kind of natural logic to this. Remember Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 about the king who forgave the debt of a servant that would have been unpayable by anyone. And yet that servant went and showed no mercy to one of his workers for a tiny debt that he owed him. Jesus' point is that we have a deep well of mercy to draw from in order to show mercy to others, and so we should. So if you're, finding, if you're in a situation where you're finding it hard to show mercy to someone in your life right now, have you considered the mercy that God has shown you? You deserve His righteous wrath, yet He has instead given you life in Jesus. How do we show mercy to others? We consider deeply the fact that we have been shown mercy. And the fullness of that mercy will be seen on judgment day. You see, the, 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 the merciful receiving mercy will be seen in all its fullness on judgment day as the sins of our lives are credited not to us, but to the one who bore them on the cross. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart. God promises in Ezekiel 36 that he will give his people new hearts. This is one of the great promises that you find, especially in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, about the new covenant. The law will be written on the hearts of God's people. And this is what we see throughout Jesus' ministry, right? The Pharisees wanted to obey the law because they didn't want God's judgment and curse again, but their hearts grew cold and hard towards the Lord. So Jesus chastises them for their hard hearts, and he exposes and condemns their hypocrisy. Well, here at the, be at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, he points out the, the necessity, the cruciality of being pure in heart. The pure in heart are those who don't just obey God's laws to avoid judgment 
or to get some kind of benefit from him. They're the ones who seek him sincerely and without selfish motives. They seek him with purity of heart. And from that heart flows righteous living. You see, those who with redeemed hearts will see God. Perhaps you're here this morning, and as I mentioned earlier, you're wondering what the difference is between Jesus and every other teacher who has walked the earth. Well, the difference is this. Unlike Buddha, the good news of Jesus' kingdom is that a person receives it not by their own effort, but by his work. God's word says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, resulting in our condemnation. But God, in his great love and mercy, sent his only son to live the pure and righteous life that we could not and to die as our substitute on the cross. The good news of the kingdom of heaven is that by repenting and turning from our sin, by recognizing that we bring nothing to the table, that we are poor in spirit, and by putting our faith in Jesus, God shows us mercy in him. This is not a self-help, look within yourself to find your purity kind of message. It's a look to him and be purified kind of message. Will you turn to Jesus and receive a new heart? For the pure in heart shall on that day, on the day when Christ returns, see God. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Robin has been teaching some of our kids recently some material from PeaceWise Ministries that has helped equip our kids in dealing with conflict. One of my favorite results of that so far is when my eldest son, Zai, is around his two older sisters and they start to have a bit of an argument. And sometimes Zai will just say in the middle of it, Conflict! And it's a good trigger for them to remember the peacemaking path that they've learned. God, me, you, us. How do we make peace in this? Peace is an important theme in the Bible. Why? Because God is a God of not of chaos and disorder, but a God of peace. And so if God is a God of peace then, of course, his people will be people of peace. And this makes sense because, as Jesus says, they shall be called sons of God. A son is like his father. And remember how throughout the first few chapters of Matthew, God shows us how Jesus is the son of God. He is the true son of God. Now, even though that term was used for God's people Israel, that he, he described them as the Son of God. They disobeyed him so often that they didn't represent him as they were supposed to. But they foreshadowed the one who was to come, upon whom God would say <clears throat> at his baptism, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The beauty of this promise is that in this beatitude is that it shows how followers of Christ will share the same title and inheritance as Him. Because we are in the Son of God, we shall be called the sons of God. Now, you've heard me say over the last couple of years that often the Bible's gendered language, like brothers, refers to both genders. You could replace that with brothers and sisters. And, and that is still true here. All who, are, all who are in Christ are sons or daughters of God. But it's impo important to grasp the weight and the significance of this title. The son in the ancient world was the one through whom the inheritance would be passed on. He was the heir to the throne. He enjoyed certain privileges that daughters did not. 
And the beauty of the gospel is that all who are in Christ receive that inheritance, whether male or female. And so, as is sometimes said, ladies, don't feel too bad about being called sons of God. Because the men have to get used to being called the bride of Christ. There is intentionality in these images that God uses to describe our standing in Christ. And so as sons of the God of peace, we make peace. And this is a peace that is more than just pacifism. It's more than just passivity. We seek and make peace in our homes and in our relationships and in our workplaces and in our world. We don't seek conflict, nor do we simply just try to avoid conflict. Peacemaking is not a passive thing. Peacemaking is an active pursuit of removing conflict and reconciling people to God and to one another. Now, Lord willing, we'll hear more about that from Josh in a couple of weeks. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, eighthly and finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we come to the other end of the bookend. And righteousness makes a roaring comeback. Christian history from the time of Jesus to today is filled with persecution. Just open up Fox's Book of Martyrs or visit the Voice of the Martyrs webpage and you'll see that Jesus' promise in Mark 10.30 that all who follow him will receive persecutions has always been true. Now, every time and place will result in a different type of persecution. Last night, I watched a video of, of a brother in Tanzania who, this was just a couple of months ago, had a note posted on his door saying, you only have a few days to live. We are coming for you. We do not, this, this Christianity, this Jesus you are preaching is a false religion. We don't face that here. And we ought to be grateful for the history of our country that enables us to live in relative freedom, in relative peace, devoid of persecution for our faith. That is something to be thankful for. Now, those sands are shifting a little. There are Christians in our time and in our place are now starting to experience persecution in ways that we haven't in a long time. But I don't know anyone yet who would say that the kind of persecution we experience here gets anywhere close to what some of our brothers and sisters in other times and places have experienced. And yet we think of ourselves as the blessed ones for having avoided persecution, don't we? Are we not more often thankful that we, have, that we don't have that kind of persecution? Wait, what did, what did Jesus say again? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Out of all the Beatitudes, this is probably the one that we would be most resistant to, I suspect. The one that we would seek the least. It's worth asking ourselves the question, church, if we're not experiencing any kind of persecution, is there a lack of righteousness in our lives that is resulting in that lack of persecution? Now, remember the connection. It's not persecution for being a loudmouth or being an insensitive, unloving culture warrior. It is persecution for righteousness' sake. But are we willing to receive and endure persecution from our friends and our loved ones and our acquaintances and our work colleagues for saying and doing what we know is right? Are we? 
Are we ready and willing to lose our jobs, to be uh, ridiculed, publicly maligned? Have our churches shut down? Have our Christian institutions abolished? I mentioned the culture warrior thing because I do think it's a danger for Christians to fall into that mode of, of thinking, yeah, that's how we need to be persecuted. It's easy for culture warriors to forget that the blessed are the meek. Yet at the same time, the very things that such culture, Christian culture warriors stand up for are things that we must stand up for. <clears throat> Because if we don't, how far will we go to justify unrighteousness in order to avoid persecution? How far are we willing to compromise righteousness in order to remain comfortable? Not speaking up about the horror of killing the unborn in the womb? falling over ourselves to affirm identities that are built on lies and not God's truth, compromising our growth and our sanctification so that we can continue to just be one of the boys or one of the girls? At what cost to our hunger and thirst for righteousness does our lack of persecution come? Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying go and look for persecution. I'm not saying, hey, if you don't have persecution, then, you know, you need to do more. Just go, go and get persecuted somehow. But I am saying, may we go and strive for righteousness and consider where a lack of righteousness might be resulting in or might be motivated by a lack of persecution. <clears throat> because persecution tests whether we really do hunger and thirst for righteousness. It tests whether we believe the promises of the kingdom of heaven are worth the suffering we experience now. And what does this persecution look like? Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. <clears throat> Did you notice the shift from the third person to the second person? Jesus goes from speaking of the blessed as they to now speaking directly to his disciples. Blessed are you. It's like at this point Jesus shifts from talking about the unintuitive blessings of the kingdom of heaven to now getting a bit more pointed with his disciples. You are blessed when they persecute you. And listen to that description you can hear the disdain and the disgust for Christ's followers in it. Did you catch that last bit? When they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Christian, expect false accusations. Expect slanderous words. Expect all kinds of evil being spoken about you. Because this is the path of God's people. Now, it's, it's worth asking, why would people want to say such things about Jesus' disciples? Think about it. I mentioned Buddha before. According to most people, Buddhism is a peaceful religion. It's very passive. When was the last time you heard somebody trying to slander or make false accusations about a Buddhist? I've never heard anybody say, I hate the Dalai Lama. He's such a fraud. Jesus anticipates that his disciples will be persecuted, reviled, and falsely accused of all kinds of evil on his account. Why? Because the gospel is not passive. 
It's not inoffensive. It's not something where we just say, well, okay, sarah, sarah, everyone, whatever we'll be, we'll be. Everybody just do your own thing and it's all fine. No, the gospel, the message of Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ. Now, once again, let me be clear, if we're not representing Jesus rightly, then we're not being persecuted on his account, but on our own. But to think that you can be his disciple and to avoid this completely is to miss what it means to be his disciple. And to miss the blessings of the kingdom. Now, by this stage, you might be thinking, man, is this thing really worth it? I mean, I look at my unbelieving friends and that blessed life looks pretty good to me, to be honest. I'm not sure that this list is doing anything for me. Listen to how Jesus finishes the Beatitudes. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. This doesn't sound like anything to rejoice about. And that's because too often we prefer our rewards to be earthly and immediate rather than heavenly and delayed. The now and not yet, brothers and sisters. Our reward is great in heaven, but we're not in heaven yet. Notice what Jesus finishes with. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness and live that out and are persecuted for it, we are in the same league as the prophets who experience the same treatment from God's enemies. Like Daniel, who was targeted even though he was blameless. Like Jeremiah, who was repeatedly mocked and imprisoned. Like John the Baptist, who was imprisoned and even beheaded for calling out Herod's sin. And like the disciples who followed Christ after he was resurrected and ascended. The apostles who rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And Paul, who would remind Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They knew what their Lord had said. And they knew that it meant that they were blessed. Brothers and sisters, until Christ comes again, this will always feel foreign to us. Yet Jesus gave us these beatitudes not just to comfort us when times are tough, but because they are true. And if we don't believe them to be true or we find it hard to feel that they are true, it's because our vision is still fixed on the kingdom of earth rather than the kingdom of heaven. It's because we've failed to fix our eyes on Jesus, the very one who embodied each of these to their fullest degree and is the one in whom we see that these truly are blessings. They truly are beatitudes. And so we must come again to the Lord, poor in spirit and seeking his mercy, praying that we would renounce the blessed life of the world and embrace the blessed life of following Jesus. That is the truly blessed life. Let's finish with a prayer from the book, The Valley of Vision.
pray with me? <coughs> Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. Amen.